0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show...
1: I've been wondering... What that special place in hell looks like for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan how to carry it safely.
0: Donald Tusk's outspoken criticism of Brexiteer politicians has ruffled feathers in the United Kingdom. But as British Prime Minister Theresa May returns to Brussels, can she at least steer her country back to purgatory? Germany promises to pay more cash into NATO's budget. But will that satisfy Donald Trump, who's accused Berlin of not giving enough? My guests Sebastian Borger and James Rogers will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... The findings of a royal commission leads to the resignation of two senior executives from a major Australian bank. Are royal commissions the best way to bring the powerful to account? All that, plus, better late than never... 70 years after refusing to publish his essay defending English cooking, the British Council says sorry to the author George Orwell. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Sebastian Borger, the London correspondent for The Tagesspiegel, and James Rogers. He's head of international journalism studies at City University London. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, with just 50 days to go until Britain leaves the European Union, the pressure on Prime Minister Theresa May is intensifying. She's in Brussels hoping to arm twist the EU into accepting a revised version of her withdrawal agreement. Yet as both sides look for a breakthrough, it's also clear that Europe Europe's patience has finally worn thin. European Council President Donald Tusk provoked the ire of British politicians and the media when he spoke of, and I quote, a special place in hell for those who promoted Brexit without even a sketch of a plan of how to carry it out safely. A question really to both of you. Donald Tusk is a streetwise politician. So why would he say this knowing that it's going to encourage, if you like, an adverse reaction in the UK, and more importantly when Theresa May is having a pint in the Last Chance saloon.
1: What an image, Juliet. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if the Prime Minister has had the odd pint over the last couple of years. She'll need it. I mean, I think every politician these days is very, very wise to the way that the media uh, would have portrayed this. And Mr. Tusk no doubt knew that his words would probably end up being taken slightly out of context. It's one of those irresistible things um, for headlines. Nevertheless, um, you know, he does make a very serious point. I think as far as reaction in this country goes, media reaction, political reaction, popular reaction um, it like so many other things now, it depends largely on the way that you voted in the 2016 referendum. A lot of people who voted Remain will say, yes, he has a very, very good point here. A lot of people who voted Leave, and we saw that even from members of the Cabinet yesterday, were saying, well, this is why we want to leave the European Union. We don't want to be bullied and spoken to like that. Um, so whether it's helpful to the process is one matter, but I think it is, it is you know, a fairly frank expression of how um, strongly people feel at this stage. Of course, it's not helpful.
2: We, we, I think we can agree on that. Of course, it was entirely scripted. I have no doubt about that. But it was informed by his meeting with the Irish uh, Taoiseach uh, Leo Varadkar just before that uh, press conference where he said it. Um, where he talked about hell. And that's got nothing to do with both of those countries, Poland and Ireland, traditionally being Catholic. Uh, But it's got everything to do with the fact that I think for the first time, Brussels is now concentrating on the effect that no deal, the chaos Brexit that we're heading for, I fear, um, will have not only on, on, on Britain, which to some extent is par for the course, I suppose, but on the Republic of Ireland um, and and how, how much uh, the European Union will have to invest uh, to, to keep the Irish economy afloat and the Irish uh, um, people fed and watered. I mean, seriously, this is going to be very awkward.
0: Mm. And th- this is a very important point as well, because uh, the, the, the the Brexit backstop, well, certainly the concept of the backstop was something that was very much absent or certainly appeared to be absent in the run up to this referendum, because the emphasis was on immigration. It was on the National absent. Health Service and there was no talk about about the backstop. And that's key because one of the signatures to that is the United States of America.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is where, you know, Remainers in particular see that Mr Tusk has a point, and I think it's also fair to say, and we saw this in some of the reactions, immediately in the days after the referendum... However much they may actually in their heart of hearts wanted to win, most of the Leave campaigners did not expect to win this referendum. And I think the allegation that this was unplanned, uh, that nobody knew exactly what Leave looked like because it hadn't been set out before, an argument was being put forward by those people in this country campaigning for a second referendum, I think they have been largely borne out.
2: I think, James, I think it's worse. I think um, there was a deliberate decision by the Leave camp not to spell out what what uh, Brexit would look like
1: but i think that's because they didn't expect to win they didn't feel they needed to and spelling no, out too much detail might because, have worked against because
2: them because they they realized that had they spelled it out they would have been um you know taken down on the details and and their case would have been fairly quickly fallen apart would mm. have fairly quickly fallen apart so 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 i think that was uh, that was part of the strategy a brilliant strategy you may argue mm. but but obviously devastating
0: let's take another point of, of mr Tu's criticisms because he he wasn't just looking at uh, those brexiteer MP, MP, mp's and there's a veiled reference there to the european research group which is a conservative Group of MPs in in the in the government basically who are pushing hard for for that Brexit without without, without agreements, but he also criticised remainers as well because he despaired at what he saw as this rather weak lack of leadership and um, the attacks equally blistering because they they were pretty mild compared to the mm. the religious imagery that was used before
1: well i mean i think this is this really as you know I, I would i don't think this is helpful at all because this is this is a criticism of something that may or may not have happened 3 years ago in a very very different circumstances I don't think anybody who was... Di- some people who were directly involved in the Leave campaign may try to justify their actions, but I don't think um, anybody thinks it was done particularly well. Mm. You know, and having spoken to some people who campaigned for it, they will point to many errors sure. now. It's not useful to drag them but it, up but now. It's the
0: point, but, but the point that he's making, though, is that there is a weak... Leadership at the heart of the Remain team. And as long as that leadership is that lack of leadership or decisiveness is there, then perhaps it makes the inevitability of a, of a hard Brexit more of a certainty.
2: But again, it tells you something about the misconception that is there in both Brussels and some other countries, and I'm afraid I will have to include my own here um, that that people were still thinking this decision is reversible, mm. and of course any decision is reversible. But I, th- I I'm afraid. It, the, the The problems of the last few weeks, particularly in Parliament have shown up how how terribly difficult the case is for a second referendum mm. uh, that, that in in fact to the to the extent that they don't even table the the relevant amendments anymore to to the government bills so so and I think uh, Brussels of course being used to countries reconsidering think of Denmark, 92, think of Ireland, 2001, Mm. think of Ireland, 2008, Um, may have thought that Britain would reconsider. I always thought John Major, the former prime minister, was right when he said uh, the British people, even if they make a terrible mistake, which I think this is, are too proud and too stubborn to reverse. So we've gone gone too far down the
0: road. But let's look at what's happening now in Brussels, because Mrs May is there. She's hoping she can actually have this rebound retweaked version of her withdrawal deal that that, that somehow or other it will be accepted by by the EU the signs so far are not looking promising but everybody has to be optimistic but there is a train of thought well, nobody in Britain. has to
2: be optimistic. Well,
0: eh? one can be mildly optimistic. Not then, at all. But, no, absolutely but, not. But, but, but the point about it, though, is that um, a lot of the uh, people have been saying in this country, well, you know, the EU it normally leaves things to the last minute. So it's always possible you can pull a last minute rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> so you disagree no, no, with that no, 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 look, I
2: mean, the, the problem is, and I think that's where Tusk and Juncker are right, the problem is not can we get the EU 27 to agree on something which will be difficult enough uh, and and also uh, I can all, only say beware of what you wish for because if you open that uh, treaty then, then I can already see the Spanish uh, shouting Gibraltar again <laughs> and, the, and the French enough, yeah. well, and the French Oops. talking about fish and, and, and all that uh, kind of thing. so beware of what you but, but even if they did then the, the problem that they point to is will May be able to get the deal through Parliament. No, she won't. Mm. We know that. We we know she's got a hard core of I'd, I'd say two to three dozen idiots in her own in her own party who will vote down anything she brings home. Let's not beat about the bush. It's ridiculous. Absolutely no way. Unless she moves towards Labour. And, and of course, Corbyn has opened the door to that. Customs union guarantees on workers' rights, blah, blah, blah. And immediately she's got 150 Labour backbenchers behind.
0: Let, let, let's, let's look at um, a possible scenario, because one of the accusations that um, some have made against her, James, is that um, she's deliberately trying to run down the clock. So, in other words, we end up having a hard Brexit, whether we like it or not. Mm. Who will be blamed for this? Would it be... British politicians for what some regard as inept negotiating or will it be the Europeans who who carry the can for being inflexible?
1: I think the answer to that is exactly the same as the answer to the way that you interpret Mr Tooth's comments. It depends exactly on what you're inclined to believe in the first place. Remainers will say this was the, the, uh, particularly uh, Remainers who are naturally Labour or Liberal Democrat voters will say this was entirely the fault of the Conservative Party. They owned the process from start to finish and they failed to deliver and they made a terrible mess of it. However, I'm quite certain there'll be large proportions of people within the Conservative Party. Others who voted Leave will say, well look at this, this is what the European Union is all about, you know, they tried, we tried to set our own course and they've done their best to frustrate us. So I'm afraid there are many, many things in this country now which your your opinion is dis- predecided upon what you're predisposed to think about Britain's relationship with the rest of Europe. So I think that is exactly how the blame will be pro- proportioned, however this turns out.
0: Because at the end of the day, uh, Sebastian, a lot of this is done through, through the prism of optics, isn't it? It's how it's going to look and particularly of the generations, how they're going to judge
2: it. And, and of course, the British media overwhelmingly supported Brexit and therefore will blame the European Union. I, I have no doubt whatsoever.
0: OK, then let's move on now to Germany, because Germany has told NATO it will stand by its promise to boost defence spending to one and a half percent of its GDP or 60 billion euros by 2024. Yet achieving that goal won't be easy. A leaked Finance Ministry report revealed that tax revenues were expected to rise by less than expected in the coming years because of a slowing economy. At the same time, a 1.5% spend is less than the 2% benchmark, which America believes alliance members should be putting into the NATO pot. So, if Germany can't deliver on that promise, Sebastian, it'll look as if it's trying to dodge its responsibility so that the slack can be picked up elsewhere. Fairly accurate but representation or false?
2: Look, I mean, the first thing is, of course, we, amongst many other nations, uh, Germany amongst many other nations, agreed in t- uh, two thousand fourteen at the NATO summit in Wales to up uh, the spending to two percent, two percent, not one point five, two percent of GDP, and 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 I I, I find it slightly uh, worrying that they could kind of go around saying proudly, well, isn't that great that we're mm-hmm. going to raise it to two. One and a half. No, sorry, you you promised to raise it to two percent. In that sense, Donald uh, Donald Trump. Sorry, I was going to say Tusk. No, Donald Trump <laughs> is entirely right. Entirely right in saying, you promised. Now keep your keep your promise and deliver. Now, mm. second thing, of course, is it's difficult to to from a from a basis of I think one point two at the moment of GDP uh, to 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 up. Spending in in such a way, in a in a, in, a, in a in an intelligent way, where you don't just buy in any any old tanks and, and sure. airplanes, but you've got to sort of structure your forces in a, in a new way, and that'll take time. Um, I I wonder, I mean, also politically it's difficult because there is a large part of the German uh, public which is entirely, uh, you know, was, was brought up on pacifism and, and is entirely against any military spending and, and totally ignores the fact, of course, that this is one of the biggest exporting nations in the world and, and, and has a certain responsibility towards both its region and beyond.
0: And I guess that the other question which arises from this, James, is why does Spending have to be financial because Germany also um, engages in in NATO initiatives. There are non-military activities and also formal deployments in countries like Afghanistan. So aren't these just as valid as opening a wallet and throwing cash into a pot?
1: I think they are, but I, mean, I think, think Sebastian makes an excellent point about the undertaken which was which was given, and particularly in the wider context of a world in which President Trump has questioned the value of NATO, which he always compares the amount which other NATO members, the amount of their budgets which they commit to NATO, compares that unfavorably with the 3.5% the United States spends uh, on defense. And I think in a world where perception is, means as much as reality, this is a problem for Germany. 2.5% is a target. It's a very... You You can imagine Donald Trump tweeting this. These are very simple figures that lend themselves very clearly to to one of his tweets in the sort of uh, odd hours of the the, the day or the night. Um, And so I think it is going to be a problem. But I think, you know, Sebastian also makes a very good point about, you know, what is war these days? How should militaries equip themselves? Let's take the example of the way that, um, you know, there's there's been concern in some quarters about whether Russia might try to uh, move troops into some of the Baltic nations. Um, But what Russia has actually done there most demonstrably in 2007 with the row with Estonia over the moving of a Soviet war memorial was to mount a cyber attack. So is it really, you know, that sensible to go low, buying lots and lots of hardware when modern war in Europe is not going to just yeah. be about military hardware? certainly the hardware. structure of war is well, it was parties. in, in two thousand and eight in Georgia, wasn't it? Well, it and, was, and it was until two thousand and fourteen in Ukraine. Not no, I in, agree. I, uh, I totally agree. The, the, that conflict was actually remarkable for the huge sums that both sides spent. Both sides spent with Western public relations firms to try to make their point in international yeah, media. But it's also
0: yeah. the way that wars are fought now, anyway. That rather than actually committing your own troops
2: on the ground, Absolutely. you go via proxies. And I agree that uh, uh, German cyber uh, cap- capacity is, capability is... Uh Woefully um, non-existent, more or less, uh, and and all the all the accounting measures about um, t- talking about. I mean, that's the other thing that a lot of the the German public talks about. Well, we spend a lot of money on uh, on um, development aid, which in its own way is is um, peace preserving, um, but it doesn't it doesn't ma- match up. You've got to put uh, more money into the military. There's no doubt about
0: mm. it. I mean, we've been talking, of course about Donald Trump I mean he's the elephant in the room metaphorically speaking I guess but I mean no, but but, that, but that's the point the point is he's, he's basically said look you know I'm, I'm putting in about 3% I think is, yeah. the, is the US contribution yes. and you know the Americans have complained in the past yes. and um, Trump has really run, run with that baton
2: I mean to be fair it was George Bush it was George W. Bush it was uh, Obama Trump says it in a in a much more <laughs> forceful and to some ears unpleasant way fine but the the, the the promise is there and you've got to you've got to keep it. and actually I mean it's not in the end what does that two percent promise matter? What matters I think is that europe is is a is a region of stability in a very unstable mm. world. We are confronted on our border with Russia which is which is a, a pretty dodgy country these days. We have lots of problems in 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 neighboring regions we and we need and and whatever, uh, whatever, however well we do peacekeeping within the European Union. Uh, there are other unpleasant people around in the world, and we've got to be we've got to be able to face them down.
0: And I guess as well, James, that if, if Germany's going to row back from this commitment, because as Sebastian said, you had the NATO summit in Wales, it's signed up to these terms, of the mm. 2%. It sets a pretty bad precedent, doesn't it, that if other countries just say, well, look, if Germany's going to do that, then hey, we might as well follow suit.
1: I think there is a risk of that, although unfortunately it wouldn't be the first or the last international mm. conference when people have made sure. spending but, pledges, but but, they don't But then it's keep. against the
0: current backdrop as well, and And this very bellicose president as well.
1: Yes, no, I think it is. And I think think that's why... um, I mean, these are leaked documents. One always has to be slightly circumspect about how these find their way into the media. Is this something they're trying out as a policy and they want to... Was it leaked deliberately or was it a conscientious civil servant who wants to... Bring well, things it's to domestic
2: politics as well. The finance ministry saying, you know, that the defense minister, minister von der Leyen, saying, oh, "I need more money." The finance ministry say, basically saying, I, "We haven't got well. the money." It's ridiculous. Mm. Of course, they have the money if they want to spend it. But I mean, the only good thing, I suppose, if we we, we are watching uh, with. Um, mixed feelings how the the, uh, eurozone economy is going down at the moment Uh, then of course if you spend 60 billion on the military that'll be a higher percentage of your GDP won't it Mm. if if your GDP well
0: okay well someone's got to juggle the coin somewhere but you're listening to Midori House here with me Juliet Foster my guests Sebastian Borger and James Rogers coming up next are royal commissions the most effective way of bringing the powerful to account when they do wrong? What is it like to
1: be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces, and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, Building on the Past, playing now in the film section at Monocle.com.
0: Now, still with me are Sebastian Borger and James Rogers. Australia's banking sector has been left reeling this week after the shock resignation of two senior executives from one of the country's top four banks. The chairman and the CEO of National Australia Bank were forced to step down after a Royal Commission inquiry into industry wrongdoing singled them out for scathing criticism. As the fallout from fees for no service sinks in, many commentators believe the scandal could only have come to light because of that Royal Commission James, are they right?
1: Well, it probably looks like it. I mean, I think sometimes um, you know, there are examples when you know public inquiries of this nature <laughs> do hit the target. Um, We've had quite a few examples in recent years in a number of industries where they were self-regulating and that, just in, in many cases, meant basically non-regulating. And on this occasion, uh, it certainly seems that those people who are singled out by it, these senior executives, uh, have accepted their responsibility uh, and have resigned. So in that sense, um, it has you know rooted out this bad practice and it does seem to have had an effect. Um, Pretty much every industry makes a plea at some point. The one example one thinks of in this country is the media. That's been something we've been through a lot in the last ten years. Well, and no specific the, the particular, inquiry. exactly, um, uh, make pleas to be allowed to self-regulate, but it doesn't always work terribly well. And it seems in this case that the, the public inquiry or the royal commission, as they call them in Australia, seems to have done the trick. Certainly, to the extent that um, these executives seem to have taken responsibility for their actions.
0: Yeah, but but the, I think the point about it, Sebastian, is that yes, they took responsibility, but very very grudgingly because. They actually stood back and said, "Well, we didn't really do anything wrong," and you've got you kind of got hold of the wrong end of the stick here. So there's no sign of contrition.
2: It's it's interesting because I, I mean I I'm an Australia tragic as my, <laughs> my my relatives over there would say. So so I've I've come and gone for 35 years now, and there have been a number of royal commissions in Australia, which I think moved the uh, political debate along uh, along a long way mm. um, on on the, the Aborigines, on um, uh, the the um, mistreatment of um, children who had been sent over in the in the mm. f- 40s and 50s, or, or not least on sexual um, crime in the in the churches. Uh, so this is only the latest example. Uh, funnily enough, I mean, I'm I'm uh, watching Britain fairly carefully for, for a quarter of a century now. I I can't remember that Britain had a royal commission, even though Britain has royalty. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's always but, but a public inquiries yeah, of some exactly. sort yeah, or another.
0: Yeah,
2: and that's a very fair point. Uh, and, and so that seems odd to. Uh, of course, we don't ha- not having royalty. We don't have royal commissions, but we have parliamentary um, uh, investigations, mm. which have also this is in, this is in, Germany. in Germany. which have also sometimes um, um, you know really cracked an issue like uh, that. That that issue on banking. Now, if we talk about banking in particular, of course, we had the parliamentary commission on banking here in in mm. in the UK in 2012-13, which I think was effective in the way it. It looked towards the future uh, to try, sure. try to try to split off uh, investment banks mm, from, from from retail, from retail banks, yeah. etc. Um, but but but. I think the misdemeanors of of the period until the financial crash and beyond still hasn't been dealt with. And, at and all. that's
0: the point, isn't it, James? Yeah. Because yes, it's great having these commissions, public inquiries, call them what you will, shining a light, confirming suspicions that something rotten has occurred in a structure. But it is when there is no legal accountability that people can walk away with some nice payoffs, etc., and go and live quietly. Okay. and isn't that a weakness that some of these, these some of these well, speech, th- Royal Commissions should have legal yeah,
1: powers? I, I think it is and I think Sebastian makes a very good point about talking about the uh, the financial crisis too because I think that has really changed a lot of people's perceptions. I note for the Reuters report on this story says that at the last um, shareholders meeting 88.1% of the shareholders voted against the uh, executives having their bonuses so obviously the Royal Commission's uh, findings are t- to that extent are very much in tune uh, with popular opinion but yes I mean of course of um, course, inquiries like this and criminal matters are two completely different ones. You know, the people involved in this case have denied any wrongdoing. They've accepted responsibility for things which may have gone wrong uh, while they're there. But from there to actually, you know, uh, a criminal case, which a lot of people would have liked to see in relation to the financial crisis, is quite a long step.
0: Okay, well, let's move on now to our finally story, because I think it's fair to say that sorry seems to be the hardest word for the British Council, which has taken 70 years to apologise to the author, George Orwell, for refusing to publish one of his essays. Orwell, whose works include Animal Farm and The Road to Wigan Pier, wrote In Defence of English Cooking in 1946. However, the council decided it would be, quote, unwise to publish it after the hungry winter of 1945 and wartime food rationing. I have to confess that when I first read this story, I I thought, well there's a little bit of political correctness here, but not quite political correctness, but it's the spirit of it. And it's it's interesting to see that some sort of a concept was there even back then in the dark days of the 1940s or the immediate post-war years, Sebastian.
2: Well, f- one, first of all, I think it's great to keep um, the name George Orwell in the public uh, uh, debate because it, it it might get some younger people to uh, take out one of his books mm. and, and delight in his wonderful English. English prose. Um, I've I've particularly enjoyed recently his essay on how to make the best cup of tea. So that that's a related
0: <laughs> that's a, that's
2: a related issue as of And but but you know um, I can totally understand. I, I always remember my parents saying in, in Germany, and I I I. I I'm not sure. I don't think it was very different here in Britain. The worst winter was not, there wasn't, n- no winter during the war was as bad as the, the the one, or in fact, the two winters after the war. Right. 45, 46, 46, 47. And uh, to, to then, it could have maybe uh, looked a little bit sort of... Um, Awkward to, to, mm. to, to people. That so they,
0: they were being very considerate. But then yeah. you have to ask yourself, James, look, he wrote this article 70 years ago. They decided not to publish it because they were being very sensitive to, to the, the conditions that people were, were going through at the time. So what's the point? Because Orwell isn't there to receive it. And the chances are, because he was a good hacker, good journalist, he thought, well, OK, then. You haven't published it. Fine, I'll go on to the next client.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's interesting. Uh, There probably is a point here because I mean, one of the things he writes about in the essay are uh, how much um, British cuisine relies on animal fat and sugar. (laughs) Now, I would imagine if you had lived through this very very lean winter and terrible time in European history, you were probably crying out for animal fat and sugar, and probably couldn't get nearly as much of it as you would have liked. Sugar was rationed in this country until the 1950s. You know, my um, my I remember my mother talking about. You know, my my daughters can't believe how few sweets granny had when she was little because the sugar was rationed um, but I think you know I think Orwell it, it's very good I, I, having read you know I looked up bits of it today as well I, I, his, his prose you know shines through crystal yeah, clear absolutely. prose absolutely it hasn't diminished um, with time at all but one wonders what he would make of British cuisine well, now this is, I this is what um, I was going to
0: ask because, because I mean the, the range has certainly remember too <laughs> he wrote another
1: article for the evening standard the evening newspaper here in London about the perfect pub which you know the sting <laughs> in the tail of that article is it doesn't exist he goes through describing what the perfect British pub would have and it's called The Moon Underwater and then at the end he says, actually this pub doesn't exist and I've looked for it everywhere and never found it. <laughs> um, so I don't know what he'd think now of gastro pubs, of craft beer pubs, he, he might think uh, things have gone a wee bit too far maybe, the other way possibly. Maybe, I but, but I
0: mean, in, in the time well, available, sorry, so you've going to say something. It'll so all it? be
1: different after no deal Brexit. So
0: oh, <laughs> 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 we were never going to get away from that, were no. we? Yes, we'll, we'll, no, only, come on,
2: but I mean seriously, in the 20 that I've been in this country it's changed immeasurably to the better no doubt mm-hmm. about it i mean apart from of course that that uh, britain absorbed uh, the, the the cuisine of its immigrants curry which was then uh, which was then talked about by robin cook the former foreign secretary as the english naso- <laughs> national dish right. even in the 1990s and but 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 also i mean all that great uh, salads and Look, fruit etc
0: you 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 my mouth water now so we're we're going to bring it to an end because we have sadly reached the end of today's show but Sebastian Borger and James Rogers thank you both for joining us here at Midori House and today's show was produced by Augustin Machellari researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick our studio manager was Christy Evans more music next than at 1900 hours it's the urbanist and we'll have more of the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow that is 1800 London time From me, Juliet Foster, goodbye.